Matthew 5, 1-16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, well, there are some significant moments in time that uh, recognise this changing the course of human history. Uh, and many of those moments have been accompanied by great speeches. Um, this man, Winston Churchill, was famous for his inspiring and motivational speeches during the Second World War, um, so much so that I named my dog after him. But one of his most famous uh, was shortly after he became Prime Minister in 1940. You know, the one where he talks about fighting them on the beaches and we will never surrender. It's a terrible Winston Churchill impersonation, I know. Um, but at the time, England was perilously close to collapsing against the German onslaught. And Winston's speeches were often credited with turning the tide of the war. Um, he was able to galvanise the resolve of the British people. Uh, another famous speech, great moment in history, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in Washington. Um, many people recognise that this turned the, the tide in the fight for civil rights in America. Mind you, you wouldn't want to suggest that that fight is done. Uh, today, we turn and look at another great speech in history, the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's probably fair to say that no other speech has been more pondered, more quoted than these words that we're going to look at from Jesus over the next six weeks. Um, some have suggested, and I'm not sure how you measure, measure such a thing, but some have suggested that this is the most influential speech in all of human history. Um, but I guess the thing about this speech from Jesus is that it's less a speech and more of a sermon. Um, what Jesus has to say is confrontational and inspirational but he's not presenting what he's he's not saying what he's saying in order to to inspire his listeners um, we'll see that Jesus has got far loftier aims than that so here we hit chapter 5 in Matthew and we're told that Jesus goes up onto a mountainside he sits down and his disciples come to him to be taught 
Um, there are crowds, and we read right at the end in chapter 7 that the crowds have been listening in on this as well, uh, but the, the focus seems to be what Jesus is teaching his disciples, his followers. He wants to lay down before them both the demands and the privileges of being a part of this kingdom that he's talking about, this kingdom that he's bringing. Those who are going to be his followers need to know what is involved in getting involved with Jesus. And so that's what we've got in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a picture of what life should look like when you're a part of this kingdom, when you're a part of what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. You're a part of that kingdom, but you're living for him in this world. How does that work and what does that look like? Today we're looking at those first 16 verses in chapter 5 that um, we just had read for us. And this section begins with what is known as the Beatitudes, um, perhaps the best well-known part of the whole sermon. Although it does have a rather, rather funny name, doesn't it? Beatitudes. Does anyone know where Beatitudes comes from, where that word is from? I know at least one person does because they're, they're at my Bible study group on <clears throat> Wednesday night and they did know. And they're not going to confess. Yes? Sorry, go ahead. It does, but, it, but from what language? Does anyone know? From the Latin. Thank you. That private school education is kicking in, isn't it? Um, so, so Latin, the Latin word for blessed, that's where the beatitude word comes from. I always thought that it came from beatitude. So, you know, it's, it's about Jesus telling us how we should be and the attitudes that we should have. I don't know why I thought that, but um, it's not that. It's just the, the Latin word for blessed. And you see why the, the terminology comes about, because when you start reading what Jesus is saying, he's, there's these eight, in fact, there's more than eight, blessed statements. Uh, Jesus talks about who are blessed and what it means to be blessed by God. Now, there's a bit of debate around what uh, these eight blessed statements mean, how we should understand them. Um, I'm convinced, without getting into all the debates, I think the best way to read them is to read them in kind of two parts, where the first four have got to do with how we relate to God, and then the second four are more of an emphasis on how we relate to others. See, we saw last week that Jesus started his ministry in a very similar way to John the Baptist, in fact. He's preaching this message, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And I think the Beatitudes actually reflect on that first uh, part of that message, the idea of repentance. And so Jesus, those first four Beatitudes, he talks about people who are blessed being poor in spirit. They are those who mourn. They are those who are meek. And they are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, and I think these four images all are a kind of a picture of repentance, what it means to turn our hearts toward God. So the idea of poor in spirit is about recognising that before God you're spiritually bankrupt. There's a poverty of spirit within you. Uh, it's about recognising that you're not right with God, that there's a problem you cannot fix. And so mourning too is, is an image that's often associated in the Old Testament with repentance itself. So people and nations sometimes, when they want to repent before God and demonstrate that, they'll put on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, these are the symbols, the images of repentance, but also of mourning and of grief. And that's appropriate. To repent is to grieve over our sin, our failure. 
And so in that state we turn to God and seek his mercy. The idea of meekness is probably often misunderstood. Um, it's not about being a pushover. I think it's really more about an attitude of heart which is humble. At the root of our sin is an arrogance, a desire to be free from God's authority. And so to repent before God is to bend the knee, to acknowledge his right to rule over our lives, his authority in our lives. And so the meek are those who humble themselves before God in that way. And then that last one, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think it's just simply a way of talking about being made right with God and, and wanting that, longing for that, knowing that it will only come to us through his grace and his mercy. And so God promises to bless those who long to be reconciled to him, those people who are hungry for righteousness, the righteousness that only God can provide. And so in that way, I think these first four beatitudes, these first four blessed statements, are less about our virtues or characteristics in terms of how we treat other people um, and more about how our hearts are before God. Jesus is telling us that no one enters his kingdom under their own steam. We enter and remain by recognising our need before God, acknowledging our our spiritual poverty. We approach God with repentant hearts. We are dependent upon his mercy, dependent upon his grace. And those people are the blessed ones. They're the ones who will enter into the kingdom of God. They're the ones who will experience the mercy of God. They're the ones the kingdom of heaven belongs to. They're the ones who will find comfort. But that's not all there is to it. The, the next four Beatitudes, I think, are talking more about the characteristics of the kingdom people and how they should relate to others. Um, so we've got these expressions about um, merciful, being pure in heart, being peacemakers, and a description of those who become persecuted because of righteousness. The followers of Jesus are to follow after him and to take on his character, to be people of integrity in the world, to be people who have a sincere generosity in their dealings with others, to be people who strive to maintain peace, to maintain good relationships with others as far as it depends on them. These are the kinds of things that kingdom people should be known for. And with each of these statements, in fact with all eight of them, there's a promise attached to them. And so we've got, for example, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And on and on it goes. But I think if you actually group all of those promises together, they provide an interesting picture for us. Let me read them out to you and, and explain uh, as a whole. Just let me read out what, what we're told these people are going to be blessed by God with. We're told the kingdom of heaven is ours, we will be comforted, will inherit the earth, will be filled with righteousness, will be shown mercy, we will see God and will be called his children. I think that's just a description of a Christian, isn't it? See, if you're someone who doesn't think you've been particularly blessed by God, well, read that list again. Because Jesus is saying that all of those things now belong to you if you belong to him. And those things cannot be taken from you. 
This is what God promises those who follow Jesus. Those who repent, those who turn their hearts toward God and put their trust in him, they'll be shown mercy, they'll be called his children, they'll be given the very kingdom of God. Now there's an element in which this kingdom that Jesus is offering us is, is both a present reality for us but also something still to come. And we can see that even in what Jesus says here. Uh, The kingdom of heaven has come, but in a sense it's still to come. So you can see that even in the way these uh, statements are phrased. So the first and the last blessed statements end with a line, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you go to, say, uh, verse 5, it says they will inherit the earth. And I think it picks up on an idea that crops up all through the New Testament, that the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, um, it's a present reality. We can be a part of it right now, but there's a sense in which there's still more to come as well. Uh, The idea of when Jesus returns, this kingdom will be completed. um, And it's only then that everything will be put right. And of course, until then, Jesus has some things he wants to impress upon us about what it looks like to live for him in this world to live for the kingdom. And doing that, Jesus says, will not be easy. Being a part of his kingdom in this world means we are going to be different from the world around us. And that's what Jesus wants to talk about in that last section. If you go down to verse 13, there in chapter 5, we see Jesus give us three images about what living for him should look like. He says we should be the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he introduces a different picture for us. He says we're to be the light of the world. And then there's a third one in there, which is easy to miss. It's also there in verse 14, where he talks about a town on a hill. Uh, It cannot be hidden. So we've got three separate images of, of salt and light and a town on a hill. So what does that mean? What is Jesus talking about? Well, I've heard all kinds of elaborate explanations over the years that try to explain uh, what these images are uh, but I think we can overdo it a little bit I'll, I'll give you one example you might have heard this one the idea that we are to be the salt of the earth that the followers of Jesus are salt of the, the salt of the earth um, I've heard people talk about the many different uses and properties of salt in the ancient world and how we as Christians there's an analogy a metaphor in there for us so the thinking goes If Christians are the salt of the earth, um, salt was used as a preservative and still is. And so his followers have to have a a preservative function within our world, within our society. Um, And so Christians are a blessing to the world in that as we live out kingdom values, we kind of prevent the world from moral decay. It doesn't become as bad as it might otherwise be. And I've heard this used to maintain an argument for why Christians and churches should be politically active. We've got a responsibility to be a force for good in our society. Now, I think that's absolutely true, that Christians should be a force for good in our society. And there's a conversation we had there about the role in which Christians should be involved in politics or otherwise. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think we should try and find every use of salt in the ancient world and then try and work out how that becomes a metaphor for the Christian life. I actually don't think it's very complicated at all what Jesus is saying here. 
And the reason I think that is because I think what we need to do is find out what all three of those images have in common, and that will help us understand the point Jesus is making. What do all three of those images have in common? Salt, a light, and a city on a hill? Well, you can't miss them. They all stand out. They're all noticeable and distinctive. So if you put salt into food, you can't miss it, can you? It stands out. In fact, if it loses that property, Jesus says if it loses its saltiness, well, it it ceases to be valuable. It ceases to be useful. You, You toss it out. And if you light a lamp, you don't light a lamp and then go and stick a bowl over the top of it. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be noticeable. And a city on a hill, well, by its very nature, cannot be hidden. All three of these things can't and shouldn't be hidden. They're supposed to be seen. They're supposed to be noticed. That's what's inherently valuable and useful about them. I think Jesus is simply saying, if you're going to be one of my disciples, if you're going to be one of my followers, you're supposed to stand out. You're supposed to be different, unique in an important way. And I think that's exactly how Jesus concludes this section, isn't it? What does he say at the end? He says, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Being salt, light, city on a hill, it's about living in a way, being noticeably different. And in particular, Jesus draws attention to our good deeds being noticed and seen by others. Part of the reason you're supposed to stand out is so that people will see that in you and praise your Father in heaven because of it. Christians sometimes are different for the wrong reasons. They stand out, well, because they're odd and weird. And at one level, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we've got to own that. But Jesus says knowing him ought to make such a difference to the way you live your life that other people can't help but notice. This whole thing about being different carries, I think, a bit of a warning within it too. Because the flip side of that coin is that if your life is not so different from the world around you, I think there's an implication from Jesus here that you're not much used to him. Isn't that what he says there about the salt? If the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. I don't think that's some sort of commentary on whether or not you can lose your salvation. I think Jesus is talking about your usefulness and effectiveness as one of his followers. The value of salt is in its saltiness. It's in its distinctiveness. And if it loses that, it's not much good for anything. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but it really makes no difference to the way that you live, if there are really no good deeds that might bring glory to your Father in heaven suggest you haven't grasped much of who Jesus is or why he came or what it means that he's called you to follow him. You might be someone who's concerned that the way you live is a bit of an embarrassment to Jesus, too inconsistent, too hypocritical. You're probably right. But The solution isn't to come to a place of acceptance with that or just to feel bad about yourself. Jesus would say that's a soft option. 
That's the coward's way out. There are things in your life that need to be addressed that you know you need to get rid of. Well, repent of it. Be done with it. And start living the way you should. The way that Jesus has called you to. In a way that he would be proud of. In a way that will bring praise to his Father in heaven. In a way that fits someone who's a blessed child of God. Now, Jesus talks here about there being a positive aspect to our uniqueness and our difference, that people will see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. But there's also a darker side to how people might react to those who are living for Jesus. And we see that a little bit earlier there in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says following him can bring persecution, insults, slander. And why does it come? Well, Jesus says there in verse 11, he says it comes because of him, because of your association with him. How people respond to you will very often be a reflection of how they feel about Jesus. Now, in this country, we're not likely to experience the kind of persecution that the disciples that Jesus is speaking to here will later experience, and we read about um, their struggles and their hardships in books like Acts. But we also know that many of our brothers and sisters all around the world still endure all kinds of things that are not a reality for us, the loss of their property, the loss of their freedom through prison sentences, organised harassment from the government, uh, even death itself. But notice that Jesus also talks here about things that we are quite likely to face and will face within our culture. He talks about things like insults and people saying all kinds of evil things against you. And if you're willing to be a visible Christian in our culture, you can expect that to be your experience and I think uh, increasingly a common experience. Are you prepared to cop some insults because of what you believe? and how you live? Are you prepared to have people put you down or pity you, slander you because, well, in their mind, you're a holier-than-thou, bigoted, intolerant, intellectual dinosaur? Are you prepared for some friendships to maybe fizzle out because you're not prepared to concede that Jesus really doesn't matter? I used to work for a guy, sorry, I used to work with a guy who was a really um, solid Christian. And it was interesting to see the way other people in the workplace reacted to him. It was a strange mixture of respect and contempt. Some people really respected his character, his integrity, his kindness and his honesty, uh, his humility. 
they saw those good deeds and I think perhaps without realising it, praised his father in heaven. But he was also a guy who wasn't quiet about his faith. And he would regularly invite people to lunchtime Bible talks that were being held in the city. And I would sometimes overhear those snide remarks, uh, the little put-downs behind his back. It was all very restrained and polite in a corporate environment. There was never any threat of violence, but it was still hurtful. Being a part of this kingdom means that at times, sticking out for Jesus, being that salt, that light, that city on a hill, is going to draw attention your way in in uncomfortable ways, sometimes in painful ways. Some will insult you for it. And you'll be tempted to shrink, to become less visible, to stand out less That's when I think we need to remember how blessed we are, who we are in Jesus, and to remember and be encouraged by these words from Jesus, who told us to let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven.